0: Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Nadesh Latu to discuss his book, New Fascism, Contagion, Community, Myth. Thanks for tuning in. In New Fascism, Dr. Latu discusses the new forms of fascism haunting our contemporary political scene. He reads this new style of fascism and crowd psychology through the lens of mimetic theory and traces the genealogy of new fascism back to the three related mimetic concepts of contagion, community, and myth. These concepts were once central to the spread of fascism in Europe and are now proving central to the rise of new fascisms as well. As Dr. Latu writes, a protean figure is now occupying the leading role on the political stage one that relies on falseness, simulation, appearance, and an excess of the capacity for all kinds of adaptations. In the process, this new fascist gives voice to hypernationalist, racist, and militaristic tendencies constitutive of the myth of greatness that is attainable for few, yet generates mass enthusiasm in the many as well. Today we're here to discuss the phenomenon of new fascism, what collision of narcissism and the madness of crowds has brought it about, and where we're heading in the wake of an oppressive global pandemic. I'm excited to be joined for this discussion by Dr. Nadesh Latu, who is professor of English and philosophy at KU Leuven in Belgium. Dr. Latu received his PhD in comparative literature and critical theory from the University of Washington, and his areas of specialization include modernism, post-colonial literature, film studies, and continental philosophy, with special focus on the theories of mimesis, imitation, and simulation. New Fascism, Contagion Community Myth is his most recent book with MSU Press, and it was published in our Breakthroughs in Mimetic Theory series. Nadesh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Kurt. Delighted to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited to um, talk about your book. and I'm especially eager to discuss how your thinking has evolved in light of the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think before we do that, we should start by sort of laying the foundations of um, your thinking about the relationship between fascism and mimesis. How did you come to read the phenomenon that you call new fascism through the theoretical lens of mimesis?
1: Yes, it's, a, it's an excellent question because uh, it's not actually a topic that I had planned to investigate. And uh, I do explain it at the beginning of the book. I grew up in the vicinity of Italy, in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. And as I grew up as a kid, the word fascism was imbued with a certain pathos that generated distance. And so the tendency uh, among us kids when we were uh, playing uh, in the schoolyard and we heard that word was to set up a distance uh, from the world and uh, deny any accusation uh, that was in any way related to fascism. And so I, I opened the book with that anecdote to indicate that we might still have that reflex, that whenever we hear the word fascism, we might think of uh, past horrors that happened in uh, the previous century and do not concern the present uh, and uh, that we are somehow safe since we live in democratic periods. So it was not a topic that I, that I was planning to address. Um, and I should say that although I am concerned like everybody these days with the extreme tendencies in the US, but also in Europe and in different parts of the world of leaders to take on uh, total control Over government, or at least to aspire to do so, uh, I wouldn't say that these leaders are the same as the fascist leaders of the 1920s and 30s. Uh, And that's why the new fascism in the title of the book has some brackets around the new to indicate a certain hesitation or suspension. Uh, I think that it's useful to compare uh, the present phenomenon of new fascism with the fascism of the 20s, but also look at the differences and not conflate the two movements there was just a little detour to come to your question uh, i started worrying about the, the problematic of fascism in 2015 2016 and i started writing the book around that time and at, at the time it, it was still difficult to foresee uh, in the political sphere in the us but also in europe how certain elections would go and uh, and i sensed that there was a danger uh, among uh, certain candidates on the far right in, in, the, in the rhetoric that they used, they seemed to be able to uh, capture uh, at the emotional level a certain energy that I felt uh, was affecting. And the reason I, 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 I think I was prepared for that is not that I was in any way prophetic or any, anything like that, but uh, my first book was focused on the period that overlaps with fascism a modernist period that goes roughly from the 1880s to the 1940s. And I was particularly interested in, uh, as you mentioned, my background is in comparative literature, and so was moving across disciplines, uh, philosophy, literature, social theory, and I was noticing that a number of thinkers, uh, very often operating in between disciplines, were attentive to unconscious reactions that did not seem to rely on the interpretation of dreams in order to actually work. They were attentive to crowd phenomena, and it seemed that the imitation at work in the crowds, especially in the 20s and 30s, and when these crowds were under the spell of certain leaders endowed with prestige or charisma, offered a door into a more embodied notion of the unconscious that I called the mimetic unconscious. And so it was this attention to uh, my nieces in relationship to unconscious and crowd behavior that actually uh, pushed me to turn to the contemporary political scene and try to establish a continuity and a discontinuity between the rise of fascism in the 20s and 30s and what is happening now uh, on the political scene in the US and in Europe. So that was basically the initial stimulus. I should also mention that when my first book came out, uh, it, it was during the Obama period. And so it was not obvious actually to see why it was important to think about emotions and the way political leaders can rely on violent, aggressive emotions in order to establish uh, a powerful relationship over crowds. And now I think it's easier to see it. And that's one of the reasons that led me to write this short book titled *New Fascist.
0: I was thinking about one of the things in the anecdote that I think resonates with the book that I had, that hadn't occurred to me when I was making my way through the book is you talked about um, being kids at the, in the schoolyard and, and accusing each other of fascism or, or declaring that what you're doing isn't fascism, kind of like a game of cops and robbers, right? Are, are there fascists in the playground kind of thing? And um, as you talked, I was thinking also about, do you know Don DeLillo's book, Mao Two?
1: I haven't read that one, no.
0: So it starts. Mao starts with a mass wedding. So there's a stadium full of, uh, you know, thousands of people who are all getting married at the same time, and the chapter concludes with this observation that the future belongs to crowds. And I was thinking of that in context of your discussion about embodied in crowds, uh, the the unconscious in action, and there's a sort of Degree to which the difference seems to be, at least in the American scene, there's a kind of spectacle going on, like that there's a shift toward um, thinking about politics as entertainment, which you talk a lot about in the book. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the genealogy of the word mimesis and its relation to acting in theater and how like thinking about a, a literary critical concept uh, like mimesis is useful for the kind of political analysis that you're doing?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for asking that question, because mimesis is such a complex and heterogeneous word, uh, and it's difficult to define, especially in literary studies. uh, There is a tendency to translate it as representation and realism. And so we, in, in the academic world at least, there might be the tendency to think of a certain genre that comes, you know, uh, that emerges in in the 18th and 19th century and has to do with the realist novel, um, and I think of a of a picture or representation of reality. And that's not the notion of mimesis that is actually originally at play in the early dialogues in the early books of Republic, for instance. Uh, when, uh, when Plato uses the notion of mimesis in Republic, initially, he uses it in its etymological sense. Uh, mimesis, as you mentioned, is linked to the mimos, uh, which uh, is linked to the actor, to the mime, but also to performance. And so it's very important to understand that the famous platonic critique of uh, the poets are, as being mimetic and as being expelled for the city from the city has to do uh, with a certain fear of the power of actors to impersonate a role uh, on a stage, uh, very often a violent role, the example that Plato in mind are the Iliad, uh, for instance, so imagine Achilles, uh, and, uh, Plato's concern is pedagogical. He he argues that there is a certain power of actors to spread emotions contagiously by giving body and voice uh, to a given role that then becomes a model to be copied uh, by by the listeners uh, in the theater, especially by young people, but not only. And so it's that original notion of mimesis linked to mimicry and theatricality that is central to my diagnostic. And you find it, uh, for instance, uh, in the modernist period, in a philosopher like Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche very, was trained as a philologist. He is very critical of Plato, of course, but he had read him very well. And so he argues at some point, uh, and I think that's one of the epigraphs of the first chapter, that there will be ages in which actors, all kinds of actors uh, will be the real masters. And when he uses the actor uh, and politicizes the figure of the actor, he has this performative theatrical notion of mimesis in mind that is of interest to me. That's why Nietzsche plays an important role in the diagnostic of neo-fascism.
0: So the the actor plays a role on the stage in... in you know, in the presence of a crowd, which then incites the crowd to behave in some way or other. In your book, you you're in the subtitle, you use the term contagion. I wonder if you could take a moment to discuss what you mean by that term, where it comes from, and especially thinking about the idea of what you call effective contagion in light of the new fascism.
1: Right. Uh, so the subtitle uh, is actually very important because it's, it's not a book on fascism in general. It's, it's not an historical account of uh, the fascism of the 20s and 30s. But it really takes mimetic theory as an entry into three concepts that I think are useful uh, to think about in relationship to new fascism. And the first one is indeed contagion. And uh, an important figure who theorized mimesis in relationship to contagion is René Girard. René Girard, as many of uh, our listeners will be uh, familiar with, um, as a theories of mimesis that start with desire, and he argues that desires are mimetic and lead to rivalry for the possession of the same object, which in turn uh, uh, has the potential to generate uh, violence and scapegoating mechanism. And so for Girard, violence is contagious. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I, I engage uh, with uh, Girard's perspective And I think that what the chapter on contagion does is to establish a genealogical connection between the Girardian notion of contagion, uh, which is uh, based on mimetic desire, and a notion of contagion that that applies to all affects, to all emotions, for good and ill. Um, So uh, emotions are contagious. uh, in positive ways as well. Think of sympathy and solidarity, and we have seen that uh, with the recent spread of COVID-19, how people can be united contagiously in a positive way. Uh, uh, Fascist leaders tend to emphasize the negative, violent and aggressive forms of contagion. and crowd psychology is a discipline that uh, emerged in the late 19th century in order to account for the strange phenomenon that was emerging at the time that when people were assembling in a city, uh, they seemed to be more vulnerable and susceptible to emotions. And leaders were taking advantage of that. So figures like Gustave Lebon and Gabriel Tard in France, but also Freud, uh, they wrote about contagion in relationship to Crowds. Uh, and so that chapter on contagion establishes a bridge between Girard's take on contagion, which is focused on desire and violence, and crowd psychology, which pays attention to the specific rhetoric that leaders can use in order to generate contagion in uh, the crowd. And Le Bon's book, for instance, it's uh, titled La Psychologie des the The Crowd, I think in English this has been translated, pointed out that a leader can have a very crude rhetoric that is based on repetition, uh, affirmation of simple slogans, the use of images, no need to explain but just an image, and of course violent emotions directed against scapegoats, and that is important for, for Girard. And Le Bon argued that this is sufficient to stimulate what I would call the mimetic unconscious. And so that's one of the reasons that I started paying attention, for instance, to Trump's rhetoric uh, in 2015, because he was using those strategies effectively. And so there is a value in recuperating mimetic theory, uh, Girard's theory, in relationship to crowd psychology in order to see why it is effective and why we are uh, susceptible to uh, mimetic rhetoric.
0: You know, I'm thinking of yesterday, I'm, I live in Michigan, and um, yesterday there was an in-car protest at the state capitol where a bunch of people who are dissatisfied with the governor's stay-at-home order gathered in their vehicles, presumably to maintain social distancing mm-hmm. while protesting uh, the forced quarantine as you know, tyranny uh, against their rights. And one of, I mean, striking that it happened at all, but one of the things that I find so striking uh, and that resonates, I think, with your discussion is the degree to which those crowds are so incredibly homogenous. Like they they come and they have very similar slogans. They're all flying very similar flags or a set of flags that they've all you know settled on to use. And it, it resonates with this idea that there's a sort of way in which the crowd can be entertained and can have a leader who you know uses very crude rhetoric or very sort of unsophisticated speech uh because they're not looking for a polished occasion you know for their protest, but they're instead trying to create a a feeling among themselves that they then share as they you know gin themselves up to do their protest or to have their rally
1: yes, absolutely and uh I think that. The situation you describe uh, resonates with the distinction that was made uh, at the origin of crowd psychology. Le Bon famously said that we are entering the age of the crowd. Um, And uh, Gabriel Tard, another sociologist writing at the same time, uh, corrected that statement and he said, we are actually entering the age of the public. And he defined the public as a virtual crowd, a dispersed crowd suggesting that we don't need to actually physically assemble in order to be susceptible to mimetic emotions. We can be, each of us, in separate cars or in in separate apartments, uh, be subjected to the same news, to the same information, to the same entertainment in order to feel that contagion. And the simultaneity of the message, uh, Tartre argued, he was thinking of newspapers, so everybody reading the same news at the same time and thinking that other people are actually reading the same, reinforced, that feeling of uh, community and cohesion that uh, that is characteristic of crowd psychology. And so one of the arguments of the book is that what is new in the new fascism might be less on the side of the message. I mean, racism, xenophobia, misogyny, uh, hypernationalism, and so forth these are fascism symptoms that are that are not new but but in the in the new media that, that actually bring uh, find new ways uh, to convey messages uh, that reach us in the private sphere i 'm thinking of social media like Twitter and, and Facebook, and uh, these media are problematic not only because they spray the spread false information. Uh, but also because they operate on algorithms that uh, tap into our ideological positions and by doing so amplify our mimetic tendencies. If I receive information that reinforces an an existing ideological conviction, it's going to be very difficult for me as well, for anybody, to actually be critical of it. Uh, And so that is something new uh, that uh, I discuss in the book.
0: I wonder if we could pursue that a little bit further, because there's there's a strain of your thinking about what the fascist style leader does um, that says that part of its appeal is in the way that it transgresses, you know, what are taken to be norms or boundaries of of polite discourse. Um, We would in the states use the language of PC, you know, the, the thing that appeals to Trump voters is that he's not politically correct, that he's willing to transgress those boundaries. And there's a a bit of discussion toward the end of the book about the degree to which the new media has also normalized pornography to some degree or normalized uh, really like what would have in the past been rather explicit kinds of cultural content uh, and made the consuming of that, you know, more normal, more like increased the intensity, increased the availability. I wonder if you could Talk a little bit about how new media has allowed that kind of fascist transgression or how it has changed the crowd dynamic in a way that newspapers or other earlier media didn't facilitate.
1: Right. So this is a kind of touchy issue that I discuss on the chapter, in the chapter on community. And for this aspect, I rely on a, on a philosopher, theorist named Georges Bataille. Georges Bataille was writing in the thirties, and he was one of the first to actually discuss fascism. He has an essay titled The Psychological Structure of Fascism that came out in the early thirties. I think it's the first essay in France that addresses how figures like Mussolini and Hitler, he says, are totally other, and he calls them heterogeneous. And he uses the language of transgression in order to account for their contagious power, transgression of taboos that are usually respected in uh, normal times, and that in, in sacred times, what he calls sacred times, drawing on Durkheim, actually can generate a form of effervescence. Also, Durkheimian term. And so the link between sexuality and fascism uh, was established already in the, in the 30s and 40s and is constitutive of the old historical fascism. What I find different and new is that uh, in the digital age with the proliferation of pornography in the internet, leaders uh, can tap into what Bataille calls the heterogeneous, uh, into transgressive, erotic, uh, pornographic material that uh, Bataille argues generates a double movement, a movement of attraction and repulsion. And uh, if repulsion is actually something that we can immediately understand in the sense that he speaks of uh, these leaders as being abject, And we have a number of examples in the media zooming in on presumed tapes with object material and so forth that generate its repulsive. So the the tendency is to say, well, you know, we want to take distance, just like with the word fascist. And yet, but I called attention to the fact that in this repulsion, there is also a movement of attraction that can work in favor of the neo-fascist leader. And so in, in the digital age, uh, I, I spent some time discussing this double movement of attraction and repulsion that we might condemn for PC uh, reasons, and we should do that. But I think a critical theorist should also acknowledge the power of attraction uh, to which we are, we are all vulnerable. And in order to counter it and see why it is effective and not simply denounce it uh, on the other one of the tendency of crowd psychology is always to say which is also one of the tendency of fascist psychology is to set up clear-cut distinction between us and them and so what the book attempts to do is to call attention to uncomfortable moments uh, in the psychology of fascism that forces a recognition that this distinction might not be clear-cut and if we look at the culture and the heterogeneous material that proliferate on the web, then it's hypocritical to set up that distinction, uh, which doesn't mean that it shouldn't be condemned. It should be condemned. And the Me Too movement I talked about that too is part of that condemnation that should be stressed. But at the same time, the power of attraction should not be underestimated precisely in order to counter it.
0: Yeah, I think this is a such an important insight and it it's such a thorny problem because it seems like one of the great, media-critical insights into the 2016 election was the degree to which, uh, and we're even having some of this conversation now about the, the COVID-19 briefings, the degree to which um, like regular news networks or even networks that you would have taken to be critical of the Trump campaign were essentially affording him endless free airtime because it's such an attractive you know, figure of entertainment to have on, even if we're repulsed by it, we can't turn the camera away. We have to keep, you know, tuning in next week to see what, or even tuning in, you know, this afternoon to see what new, you know, what new thing we can be repulsed and disgusted by. And in the book you point out that even those institutions, like say, um, of cable satirical news comedy programs like the daily show or the Colbert report or whatever, they depend, in fact, on, you know, the, the propping up of this leader in order to keep the content coming.
1: Right. Um, here, ambivalence is a term that I, that I use. It's a psychoanalytical term, but I use it in a non-psychoanalytical sense, precisely to indicate this uh, double movement, uh, even on the side of the critique of fascist behavior. Uh, on the one hand, I have enormous admiration for uh, satirical shows, and I think they play an essential role role in unmasking uh, the strategies of the actor. Because they are in the business of acting themselves, I think that comedians understand very well the powers of mimesis, and, and, and or, I have enormous appreciation for their diagnostics. The, the critique uh, it concerns less the comedian themselves, but the culture of entertainment that is uh, contributing, I think, to generating a blurring of distinction between politics and entertainment and fiction uh, in a world in which politics is already uh, so much operating on the, on the mode of entertainment that, uh, that can be politically problematic and actually play in the favor of the leaders that are being So that's the ambivalence that I have with respect to satirical uh, TV news shows. Uh, And I think that, once again, it's a question of distinguishing between the message and the medium, if the message might be uh, critical. of uh, the new fascist tendencies that are emerging, the medium might actually contributing to flattening this distinction between politics and fiction. And that I think is problematic in a, in a, in a world in which politics is already operating on the mode of fiction. But I should also say that's why as somebody trained in uh, comparative literature and critical theory and literary c- criticism, I saw that coming from aesthetics Coming at politics from the angle of aesthetics and using a concept like mimesis that is essential to aesthetics can actually contribute to our understanding of politics. So, I'm not a political theorist, I'm not an historian, but I think that literary critics and theorists have something to say about politics nonetheless because it operates on aesthetic categories.
0: You're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with Nadesh Latu discussing his book, New Fascism Contagion Community Myth. You do a really good job of that in the book because I it, it does seem like, you know, we're at this moment where the entertainment culture of politics is so powerful um, and seeps into every aspect of life that one wonders what can be done and what, what good literary criticism in particular could do in, in the face of, you know, the things that you diagnose as having happened. It's hard to imagine um, ways of acting, but it does seem like a valuable insight to say that there's a value in unmasking this these processes for what they are so that we can better learn how to interact with them or resist them. For me, the question is this tendency to embrace the us versus them kind of thinking from the opposite side. So it's easy for folks on the left to talk about Trump supporters as though they're this sort of anonymous group of mongoloid middle class white Americans. How do we avoid that homogenizing our own response to the things that we're seeing in the culture?
1: Yeah, that goes back maybe to the fact that mimesis cuts both ways. And if the subject of the book is on the negative pathological side of um, mimetic behavior and politics, uh, we should not forget that, uh, and we see it during the epidemic crisis, that we are relational creatures So one of the insights of the mimetic unconscious is that the unconscious is not located in personal dreams. It's located in relations with other people, uh, relations of sympathy and and solidarity, and that is rooted in our nervous system as much as the aggression and violence. Uh, There is a struggle between these two tendencies uh, in uh, uh, mimetic uh, animals like humans. And so being able, during a crisis, for instance, to, to join forces, even from a distance, using digital media, which in themselves are not good or bad. The, the use that we are doing now, I'm in Germany, and you are in the States, and we are having a conversation, uh, and we are trying to put it to productive pedagogical use, it's just one of the many examples of people uh, using new technologies in order to develop uh, bonds of solidarity. and. Uh, In the book, I use this old image of the allegory of the cave, um, saying that, yes, we are a little bit like those prisoners uh, at the bottom of a cave, constantly looking at shadows and mistaking them uh, for reality, Um, but we are also equally connected uh, in that cave. The chains uh, not only chain us to the uh, shadows, but also to each other. And uh, in the book, I have a discussion with political theorist William Connolly uh, that ends the book. And uh, we try to discuss, uh, uh, he has written a book on fascism as well, titled Aspirational Fascism, which in many ways is a companion to to my book. And uh, we are discussing uh, positive strategies, Uh, that are essential in an age which is plagued by crisis. Fascism thrives on crisis. The coronavirus is an example, but uh, the uh, climate crisis is uh, is one that uh, is not as discussed as it should be, and will certainly play in favor of uh, neo-fascist leaders. And uh, in periods of crisis, it is essential to move away from uh, the crowd psychology that promotes violent, aggressive behavior, and look for these alternative forms of mimetic connections that promote solidarity and uh, compassion. Uh, And uh, that is something that is actually visible when we see suffering uh, close to us. Uh, The examples in Italy, uh, people uh, kind of cheering on balconies and generating support. There is an enormous power in people coming together for positive reasons as well, even if there is a distance at play. And I think that's the direction that needs to be explored in uh, the age of the Anthropocene.
0: That really does encapsulate some of the message of the book because you come back time and again to the idea that this the mimetic system that you describe, the contagion of ideas, the way that we influence each other, is not in and of itself a neo-fascist or an old fascist system in the same way that the media is neither good nor bad inherently, you know, because of the technology that it is. Um, but rather it's a, it's a system of, of, of relationality, a way of thinking about how we interact with each other, um, how we, you know, encounter one another, what we learn from each other, what we do together. One question that I wanted to pursue on the, back of that is thinking about the, the role of the ego. Your first book is called The Phantom of the Ego. Um, and as you write in the section about Plato's cave, there's a sort of degree to which the neo-fascists depend on an ability to dispossess the individual of its ego and replace it with uh, what you describe as a light hypnotic trance uh, so that folks are acting even against their own interest what Where does the the ego, the individual self fit in your model of contagion and community
1: right it, it's a great question um, so it's true that on on one side, the focus of the book is to pay attention to what you could call the irrational uh, side of uh, human beings, what I call homo mimeticos. We are not only homo sapiens uh, we are also emotional creatures that can be easily manipulated by. Emotions, and it's important to be aware of that. But uh, to be aware, in order to counter a certain idealization of uh, uh, human rational faculties, which uh, doesn't live up to the facts. Uh, if you look around, uh, it's difficult not to see uh, how the ideal is far removed from the reality. At the same time, I- I've spoken of this movement of attraction and repulsion. In, uh, in Bataille, for instance. Um, Nietzsche has a similar phrase, uh, 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 which generates a double movement. He, he speaks of pathos of distance. And that is one of the core concepts of the mimetic unconscious. That is, on the one hand, the mimetic unconscious is open to pathos, he is open to emotions, he is prey to affects that take possession of the ego, generating copies or simulacra of other egos, especially in in a crowd. But that doesn't take away human's capacity to put themselves at a rational distance from those emotions. Petos and distance can operate simultaneously. Uh, And uh, what I'm advocating is not an irrationalist. It's not the idea that oh, we are irrational creatures and there is nothing to do about it. I wouldn't be writing a book about it. <laughs> would that be the case. Uh, we are indeed capable of taking distance and promoting positive modes of mimetic behavior, as I argued. And so the ego plays a role in that choice. I think that there is a degree of choice. Uh, even in an algorithmic world in which we are fed the uh, news that already you know we are already uh, predisposed to receive there is the possibility to choose uh, what media we follow what radio programs we listen to what newspapers we read and that is increasingly important in a period of crisis we see with, with the coronavirus uh, in order to resist panic uh, it, it is so essential to uh, pay attention to the virologist and epidemiologist who give us the information. If you have the information, there is no need to panic, uh, but we follow the rules uh, in that particular case. So I think that is a lesson that is particularly essential in uh, periods of crisis like uh, right now. And in a way, the the viral contagion of the coronavirus uh, amplifies the importance to pay attention to the positive uh, and of course pathological dimension of uh, emotional contagion, which is what my book is about.
0: Thank, thank you for that. I, I I'm thinking a little bit about um, pushing pushing a little bit further on the question because I do want to believe in you know the freedom of choice and our ability to seek out sources of information that we can trust and act according to the best you know evidence that we can find. As one of the things that I've been sort of attending to even before all of this happened is the degree to which we are comfortable offloading moments of choice to algorithms or to our technology. And it's been going on in Asia for a, a long time. And in the wake of the pandemic, it's been cranked up. So now uh, there are QR codes that you can use to dis- to determine the status of a particular um, individual like was this person infected? the QR code will tell you if they've been um, if they've recovered from an infection and then that translates into social policy so you know you can or can't come in the grocery store depending upon what the technology says about your infection status Does that worry you at all or do you think about you know the the self in response to these massive systems that are designed by individuals but then become, uh, that then function on their own
1: yes absolutely i'm I'm worried about that, and that's one of the reasons that I keep writing about mymesis uh, and that I think that mimesis is such an important concept to to rethink in uh, the digital age if we have always been mimetic creatures uh and uh, that that is not gonna go away the uh potential for mimetic exploitation of human beings have just been amplified due to these new technologies. And so becoming aware of it uh, is just the first step in order to try not to erase mimetic behavior. That, that is not going to go away. Uh, we are mimetic creatures. But in order to promote communities and relations that uh, foster alternative forms of mimesis. So I'm absolutely worried. I think that the, everybody should be uh, worried, but precisely for that reason, we have no choice. Uh, there is no possibility of just co-collective you know, despair. I think that we can start with the mimetic relationship that we have, or children if we have children, students if you're teachers, friends, uh, and work from the bottom up. Uh, and uh, promote the forms of mimetic behavior that can counter uh, those new technological developments. And technology, uh, as I said, is neither good uh, nor bad. It depends on how we manage to actually use it. And um, I know that's not uh, a magical solution to the problematic, uh, but I think that uh, being aware simultaneously to both the dangers of uh, mimetic pathologies and the possibilities internal to Mimetic form of communications that are life affirmative. I think that that awareness is absolutely essential today.
0: I agree. Essential is a good word for it. I one one of the things that strikes me about your book is that, um, as you said, it's not a, an enormously long book and it's a timely book, right? You're thinking about the events of 2016. Um, you've managed to reflect on you know development since then, you know up until the publication. Are you? Where's your thinking now? Are you working on a new project?
1: Right. So I should say that the book is part of a, of a grant uh, that is funded by the European Research Council uh, in Europe. Europe realized that it's actually important in periods of crisis to uh, finance projects that work on problems. And my niece is, uh, is uh, the, the, the focus of the project. It's titled Homo Mimeticus. And so I'm looking at different manifestations of mimetic behavior. The political uh, it's not something that I'd originally planned. I was forced into writing that book by the events, and I tried to write a book in as accessible a style as possible, even though the figures like Girard and Jean Bataille and Nietzsche I mentioned can be difficult figures. I think that they have essential insights that can be mediated in an accessible language. And so I worked on that. Uh, and uh, at the moment i'm I'm working on different projects um, that look also at the positive possibilities internal to my one of them has to do with oscar wilde Uh, oscar wilde it's my literary critic side um, had this famous phrase um, where he said that life imitates art more than art imitates life Um, and so he's countering the notion of Mimesis as simple realism in order to promote the a realization that life is mimetic and can be shaped aesthetically uh, by artistic models. Uh, And those models, well, they can be traditional models from tragedies to novels uh, and plays. Um, but, uh, but also contemporary models. So I think that the arts do play an important role in shaping a certain sensibility uh, for the environment, for, for instance, and, uh, and as a parent of uh, two small kids, but well, of course I, I do rely on, uh, on movies uh, uh, or documentaries uh, in order to foster a sensibility for, uh, for the planet and for the environment that I think aesthetics can mediate effectively. And that's why I think that philosophy and uh, art should be working together. And if my myth is traditionally generated a conflict or a, a quarrel between philosophy and literature, I think it's the time to join those perspectives in order to counter some of the challenges that we're facing. So that's part of the project Homo that I'm working on.
0: That sounds great. I hope that uh, the new book is forthcoming soon because I think it's, as you say, a a timely and important moment to be thinking about where we can find better models than those we see taking over the political stage. I think with that, we're just about out of time. Before we go, I wanted to say thank you so much again, Nadesh, for joining us today. Uh, I've learned a lot from your book and I've really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Kurt. It has been a pleasure. And I should also say that I'm very grateful to my editor, Bill Johnson, uh, at Michigan State UP and the entire team. It's a privilege to be working with such excellent editors and such a strong collaboration.
0: Great, good. I'm glad to hear that. Dash Latu's book, New Fascism Contagion Community Myth, is available at MSUPress.org and other fine booksellers. As Dr. Latu stated, the book is part of a larger project funded by the European Research Council titled Homo Mimeticus. You can learn more about that project at homomimeticus.eu and at HOM underscore project on Twitter and on Facebook at HOM Project ERC. Professor Latu is on Twitter at Nadesh.Latu, and you can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Mediha Vos, Dante Smith, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.